Men, we're under attack. On every side, evil forces encircle us, and they desire to tear down and destroy that which we stand upon. Our families, our faith, our forefathers are being overthrown on every side. Just as in the day of Isaiah, we are witnessing justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the streets. And just as it is today, the reason we find is that there was no man, there was no intercessor. How long will we allow this injustice to take place? How long will we relinquish the removal of righteousness? How far will we allow the truth to fall in our streets? Where are the men of courage who are called to fight for the faith? Where are the mighty men who will raise a fist and declare enough? Where are the fearless few who race towards giants, who swing jawbones, who crumbled walled cities, who plagued evil rulers, who walked on water, and who carried crosses? What if God's plan for every man was to take that stand? What if each man were willing to be God's man in battle? What if God has called you to be the one to charge the enemy's camp? What if he has commissioned you to boldly believe and fight fearlessly on his behalf? We are calling all men who are ready to return to the resolute and rigid righteousness of our faith. Men who possess a power and who carry a courage to stand for God's word in a world bent on destroying it. Take up the mighty banner of belief, and like our Savior, may we have courage to be a mighty man. Have you ever stopped to consider that prayer is an investment? In fact, uh, the title of our uh, chapter this past month was Eternal Investments Pay Off. How many of you like a good investment? I'd venture to say that a lot of us have a 401k or some kind of retirement account. Uh, maybe you have other investments, but this is the hard truth about investments. They're only as good as what you get out of them. Amen. I used to work for an attorney here in town and uh, before going into ministry, and one of the parts of the business was sheltering large sums of money by investing them in very precise ways. And so you put in for what you can get out. That's, that's the entire point of investing. But as we dive in today, I want you to ask yourself if the investments that you're making in your life are paying off. Are, are you making ignorant or ideal investments with your life? Are you investing in something that will bring an increase to your life? Or are you increasing in what will bring a loss of profit in the choices that you make. Today, we're going to take a look at a very simple lesson entitled Gethsemane Gains and Trades. And so right out the gate, I want to start by giving you the absolute best words of wisdom from the world's best investment expert ever. John 6.63, Jesus says this, It is the spirit that quickeneth, which means increases or lasts, but the flesh profits nothing. It's really simple, guys. It's a simple equation. It's not complex. You don't have to work on Wall Street. You don't have to have a degree. You don't even need a calculator. This is the formula. Invest in the spirit, gain an increase, or invest in the flesh and lose 
a profit. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. If you want to increase your shares, if you want to quicken or increase your investment, then invest in what the Spirit is within you. Put the time into prayer, time into increasing God within you. Only an investment in the Spirit will turn a profit that will grow and be worth your while. But if you want terrible investment advice, then make an investment into what loses profit, what leaves you in the red, what leaves you with the deficit, and that's to invest in the flesh. It'll leave you bankrupt time and time again. It's simple, guys. Invest in the Spirit. Increase your investment. Invest in the flesh. Profit nothing. And what we're going to find today is that this is exactly what takes place in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, a super familiar story, especially this time of year. But this is a story of investment. This is exactly what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 44 say this. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and he fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his his disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went again, away a second time and prayed saying oh my father if this cup may pass away from me except i drink it thy will be done and he came and he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and he left them and went away again and prayed a third time saying these same words so like i said i'm aware that we all know this story i know especially this time of year it's super familiar to us but i really want us to grasp this scene here guys Jesus takes his beloved inner circle of his closest disciples with him into the garden. And we find that here in the garden, here in Gethsemane, there are two types of investments that are made. And as a result of these two types of of investments in Gethsemane, we're going to find that at Calvary, the results are found from these investments. And so the first type of investment we see right here in the garden is an ignorant investment. An ignorant investment, in fact, made by me-centered men. Ever met one of those? Ever been one of those? A me-centered man? These guys entered that night because they were asked to. Maybe it was out of a reverence or out of a respect for Jesus, but they entered ultimately with me on their mind, with their own motives, their own interests, their own desires. We aren't given the details, but it's likely these men probably prayed a bit before they snoozed. Maybe it was a 10-minute quickie prayer to get Jesus off their back. But it's obvious by what transpires that night that they came into the garden and these men, they didn't come asking God. They didn't come seeking God. They didn't come seeking God's will. They didn't even come to comfort Jesus. Instead, these men come with nothing but themselves on their mind. They were being me-centered men. And as a result, they make an ignorant investment. These men knew the importance of prayer. They, they had asked Jesus in the past, Lord, teach us how to pray. They knew the significance of this hour. Jesus had told them what would happen next. 
They knew the burden that Jesus was carrying. And yet, even in knowing all of this, they chose to satisfy me over he, over God. These men go into the garden and ultimately they seek to satisfy themselves instead of what God wanted. If they were sleepy, they were going to sleep. If they were hungry, they were going to eat. If they were bored, they were going to play Xbox or whatever they could get their hands on in Gethsemane. But the bottom line was this, guys. They came into the garden with the expectation to leave the same way they came in. They saw no need for seeking God or his will because they were completely satisfied with their own lives. They had no desire to be changed, no intentions to be altered. There was no desperation, no need for God. They were on top of their own little world and they were the king of their own little castle. They were looking out for their own biggest fan, which is me. These were me-centered men, and they were me-centered men making an ignorant investment into whatever made me feel best. Whatever me wanted is what me was going to get. And so they make this ignorant investment for instant satisfaction, and it definitely doesn't pay off. We read as they come into the garden, instead of investing in their spirit... Instead of hitting their knees and pleading with God for more of him in their lives, they instead invested in their flesh more of themselves in their lives. Did you catch that? They trade their spirit, which is the only bit of God that is in them as a man, for instant satisfaction, for a quick nap, for whatever made them feel good. A quick shut of the eyes for eventual error. They make this get-rich-quick investment, and they give up, and they give in. They allow their flesh to take over to what feels right for them, all at the expense of the empowerment of God in their lives. And guys, this is the plague of mankind, is it not? This is the plague of all of us. We, time after time after time again, make this terrible trade. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to admit it verbally because if you are a man here today, I know with a fact that this is your life. Not only are you a me-centered man, but you are constantly making ignorant investments over and over and over and over again. You're making terrible trades in your life. You seek to satisfy your flesh at the expense of your spirit all of the time, and it's an ignorant investment. You seek to satisfy yourself, your biggest fan, by whatever means you feel necessary. You're always looking out for you, always trying to please you, time and time and time again, making this terrible trade, God within you, the spirit within you, for the flesh and what you want. If you're hungry, you're going to eat. If you're tired, you're going to sleep. If you're bored, you're going to occupy your time. And you don't, you're going to do whatever needs to happen in order for you to feel instant fulfillment regardless of what God wants from you. Do you get that this doesn't have to be sin? Do you get that here in the garden the disciples take a nap instead of praying? Napping's not a sin. Amen? Napping is not a sin. Yet... It was an investment in their flesh, a feeding of their flesh, a feeding of what felt good, what felt needed. And every single time you do it, every time you choose to invest in the flesh, the cost of the expense is God's presence, the spirit, 
within you, and it's a bad trade every single time. And yet it doesn't stop us, does it? It doesn't stop us from falling into it again and again and again. We trade the only solid and guaranteed good thing in our lives for a quick nap. A quick and over-before-you-know-it satisfaction. Do you realize that this is the most cowardice and weakest thing that a man can do? Being me-centered, satisfying my needs, is a weak and cowardly way to live. We like to measure a man by how much they can bench press or, or how, how fast they can tune a hot rod, right? That, that's how we like to measure men. And all the while, God, the maker of man, the standard by which a man is measured, says it's the amount of denial of your flesh. It's the amount of allowance of my spirit that measures a man. It's me in you that counts. That's what makes a man manly. Me, God, in you. The easy route is to give in to whatever feels good. It's the easy thing to do. Do whatever you want to do to satisfy your own needs, feed your own stomachs. Anyone, everyone can do that. That's not being a man. That's not being manly. Beating your chest and satisfying your own needs is being selfish. It's being anti-manly. That's being me-centered. It is wicked and it is at the core of who Satan is and what he does. And when we are me-centered, we choose our needs, our wants, our desires. We're choosing to embellish the devil within us instead of God within us. We're embellishing Satan instead of Savior, and it's a terrible trade every time. And what we're going to see here with the disciples is that it has devastating consequences. They face rank results because of this terrible trade. Because these men, they they were weak. Because they chose to invest in their flesh over the spirit, their will over the will of God, because they chose instant gratification over godly satisfaction, they would leave the garden and they'd go to fall on their face. They would go on to fail miserably at Calvary because they did not pray, they did not invest in the spirit in Gethsemane. I want you to think with me for a minute. What should have taken place that day in the garden? Because obviously by Jesus' remarks, he was a bit disappointed, right? He, they did not do his will here. They did not pray like he wanted them to. And so what should have happened? Say, say the disciples stay up with Jesus. Say these men pray just as sincerely and just as desperately in the garden. Say they denied the flesh just as much as Jesus did. And say they become empowered with the Spirit of God just as much as Jesus did in the garden like it should have, right? They, they quicken. They increase the Spirit of God within them by prayer. We obviously don't know for sure, but had they, like Jesus, denied their flesh, given into the Spirit, it had been no stretch of the imagination to imagine the disciples going on to Calvary and standing boldly for Jesus. Maybe, maybe they would have stood next to him at his trial. Maybe they would have stood at the feet of the cross and preached to that angry mob and turned into salvation. Maybe they would have been crucified next to him. We don't know. But one thing is certain. Had they prayed, had they invested in the Spirit of God within them there in the garden and turned a prophet, quickeneth, increased the Spirit within them that day, instead of rank results, they would have had righteous results. As the world would have come to know more of God and His will, His Spirit, 
in and through them. And yet instead, yet instead these men, they failed miserably. They failed in a huge way. Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. He begins angrily cursing at the accusation that he's ever been with them. The rest, they scatter. They hide like cowards. Look it out for me. They were me-centered. Cowards. And at the root of the results, we find they invested in instant satisfaction of the flesh instead of spirit. They settled for what felt best to their flesh then and now. And they invested in short-term results which was a devastating mess and a complete failure. Galatians 6, 8 says this, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. This was the problem of these men. They made an ignorant investment. They, they chose flesh, and as a result, they got more flesh. At a time when they needed God's spirit within them, maybe more than ever before, their investment yielded more of the same. Flesh in, flesh out. Flesh for flesh. At the very moment that the world was looking to them in Jesus's absence, all eyes were on these men to know who God was. All eyes were on these men to know his will and what he was doing. They were nowhere to be found. These men, called by his name for his purpose, these men, called and commissioned to continue his work, were MIA, because they made an ignorant investment. And all too often, we do the exact same thing. We invest in instant gratification of the flesh, and as a result, we reap more flesh, flesh for flesh. And just like the disciples, when we need God the most in our lives, we instead have flesh When the world's looking to know who God is, his will, we have flesh. Because we've invested in flesh. Flesh for flesh. It's a terrible trade, and it always has rank results. But then there's the second kind of investment we see in the garden. Jesus enters the garden with a purpose. He he enters with a determination Jesus had no intentions that day to leave that garden in the same way he entered. He was not going away empty-handed. Where the flesh-filled, me-centered men made an ignorant investment, Jesus, the he-centered man, the God-centered man, Jesus came and he made an ideal investment. He entered the garden to speak with God, and in doing so, he's going to get more of what he came for. Spirit. For spirit, God. I want you to ask yourself, why did Jesus pray? Have you ever let your mind wander there? Am I the only one who has weird thoughts like that? Like, you are God, so why are you praying? Isn't that kind of technically talking to yourself? If he was God, didn't he ultimately know everything that was going to go on before it even happened? So why pray? Why did Jesus come into the garden that day in the first place? Why did he feel this desperate urgency to hit his knees and to pray so sincerely and so desperately? I mean, in his final hours of freedom, Jesus literally could have went and done anything that he wanted. Jesus could have made a final push to heal as many people as possible. He he could have taught a final lesson in the temple. He could have spent time drilling the disciples with truth. He could have spent his time in any number of ways. And yet Jesus, knowing his time was drawing to an end, in his final hours of freedom, 
resorts to the garden to pray. You know, a lot of us like to convince ourselves we don't have time to pray. And yet Jesus recognized a truth that we need to grasp today. Where we think we don't have time to pray, Jesus recognized he didn't have time not to pray. Did you catch that? A lot of us convince ourselves we don't have time to pray. Jesus knew he didn't have time not to pray. Jesus prays with more desperation than any man has ever prayed. He enters the garden. He prays so intensely that he begins to cry drops of blood from his eyes. He pleads with God. He seeks God's will. He cries out to God three times in a continual and a habitual urgent desperation. And so we're looking at this scene and we're like, Jesus, why? Why the garden, Jesus? Why Why are you going to spend your last hours of freedom in prayer? That night, Jesus entered the garden because he realized and he recognized something the disciples did not. Jesus understood what most of us have yet to come comprehend in our own lives. Jesus enters the garden out of a complete and utter bankrupt dependency upon God. He goes to the garden because he was so ultimately aware that only by the Spirit, only by God within him, would he be able to do what needed to be done. And so at this conclusion, he needed to make this investment. He needed more Spirit, and so he invests Spirit for Spirit. Spirit for what is profitable. Spirit for what increases. He goes to get more of God in Gethsemane. And to get rid of more flesh. So how does Jesus go about making this investment? How how did he, and how can we, how can we have more God in our lives? How can we have more of God when we need him most? Well, notice what Jesus prays. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus in an unknowable desperation, pleads with God. And this is what he prays. If there's any other way, any other way for this to unfold. Yet, God, if there's not, then ultimately, Lord, help me want what you want, Father. Because if this cup is your will, then help it be my will too. Jesus enters the garden knowing that he was incapable of doing what he had to do without God. And with this in mind, we find exactly what type of investment he makes. Jesus submits himself in the garden. He surrenders. In order to get a gain in Gethsemane, in order to get a better return, in order to increase a profit of spirit, in order to receive what he needed the most, he had to submit his own will for the will of God. He had to submit his ways for the ways of God. He had to be he-centered, God-centered, instead of me-centered. And I think this is where most of us go awry with prayer, do we not? I, I think that we know there are many types of prayer, but do we realize that prayer is not, it is not an investment in our will, in our way. In fact, often, more often than not, prayer is a relinquishing It's a letting go of our will and our way. Prayer is admitting that we can't, and at the conclusion, 
Investing our worthless will to God in order that we may receive Him and His will and His empowerment. This is exactly what we see take place with Jesus in the garden. He goes in, knowing he could not as a man drink this cup because his flesh as a man was weak. And so he desperately, he urgently prays to God and in doing so, Jesus doesn't change the mind of God. Jesus doesn't change the plan of God. He doesn't alter what comes next. The only single thing that changed as a result of the prayer of Jesus was Jesus. He submits himself. He was the only thing that was different after his time in Gethsemane. He was now willing to submit and go through with the plan of drinking the cup because he submitted himself to God. But guys, I really want you to grasp this. Here we have Jesus, who is a man who is fully God. He was 200% man, but he was 200% God. And yet still, even as God, he has this desperation. He has this urgency to seek the Father in prayer. Jesus had this dedicated dependence upon prayer. Jesus, who was God, who was in flesh, who was the literal incarnate of God, walking among men, still needed to seek God to know and accept the will of God. If Jesus needed this dedicated dependence, if Jesus needed to submit in order to fulfill the spirit of God within him and overcome the flesh, then who in the world do we think we are? What is our problem? If Jesus realized his needs to do so as God, needing to seek God in order to do the will of God, why are we so quick to hesitate? Why do we resist? Why do we claim God, but we don't seek God? Why are we so quick to say what God desires and yet we're not willing to be dependent upon him? Jesus knew prayer would increase the spirit of God within him and the only way he could have the will of God in his life was to have more of the spirit. And so at this conclusion, he submits himself and he receives more of God so that he could do what only God could do in and through him. Just like Jesus, we are sent down into this world to represent God, to make who he is and his will known to this world. And yet, in order to do so successfully, Jesus had to seek the will of the Father constantly. He cries tears of blood to bring his own will into the submission of God's will. And if God himself, if God in flesh had to do as much, If he had to labor this hard to make God's will known, how far amok in Christianity have we ran this thing because we've been left to our own devices instead of God's? We're not willing to admit a desperate dependency upon him. We aren't willing to surrender our will for his will. We aren't willing to pray in such intense sincerity that it causes our own bodies harm. Such desperate dependency that it takes up our precious time. It costs our will, our desires, and our wants. 
This was the extreme measure that Jesus, as God in flesh, was willing to go to in order to make God and his will known to this world. And man, if if we're barely willing to, to bow our heads in prayer for 10 straight minutes on our best day, what hope does this world have of knowing him and his will? What hope do we have of completing the work he's placed us here for? Have we convinced ourselves that that we've got it figured out on our own? Have we fooled ourselves into thinking that we're superior to the master we serve? Are we so arrogant that we are unwilling to say we can't, but only he can? Because that's what it means to pray. It means admitting you can't, but only he can. And at that conclusion, investing in the spirit, investing in God within you. Praying is investing in God and saying, God, only through you, only to you, only by you, for you, can this be accomplished. Men, listen, it takes an investment of our time. It takes an investment of our submission. It takes an investment of our will, of our resources. It takes a desperate dependency to find and to know and to live the will of God in your life. It's going to take more than two measly chapters a day and a quick prayer. It's going to take more than sitting on a pew on Sundays. It's going to take more than claiming Christianity. It takes work to be filled with God. It takes intense, body-wearying labor to get our flesh to submit to His will. It takes intense labor to know and to make him and his will known to this world. It takes an intense dedication and labor to resist temptation. Are we as men afraid of hard work? Are we afraid of dedication? Are we afraid of desperation? Are we a bunch of spiritual sissies? Are we big believer babies who choose the easy route instead of the everlasting route at the cost of God within us? Jesus invests intensely in the garden. He gives his precious and limited time. He gives of his body. He gives of his future, his will, his reputation. And here Jesus recognizes that only God can do what needs to be done. And so it was of the utmost importance that he makes sure he is in the will of God. And as a result of his investment As a result of his intense submission here in Gethsemane, Jesus, ultimately, he succeeds. Amen? He he succeeds. Jesus will go on and he'll face a mock trial. He'll face accusations and torture and beatings. Ultimately, he'll face death. He doesn't falter. Never once does he fall or fail. Jesus succeeds because of the Spirit of God within him. The investment of God within him as a man paid off. And what I want us to realize is that unlike the disciples, because Jesus submits his will to God here in prayer in the garden, the return on his investment was received at Calvary, spirit for spirit. Jesus succeeded. Jesus was able to endure perfectly. He was able to persevere through every bit of punishment they could hand down to him. Not because of his strength, not because he was God, not because it was easy, but because God was within him. He was able to endure. 
He was able to bring salvation to this world. He was able to make God and his will known to this world for all of eternity because he invested in God's will instead of his will. He invested in his spirit instead of in his flesh. And he turned a prophet. He received more spirit and less flesh. It was a good investment. It was a very good investment. Anytime we're investing in the will of God, Anytime we're investing in the spirit of God, anytime we're denying our flesh, the return will be righteousness within us. It's an ideal investment. A lot of us men, if we were honest, a lot of us struggle with our flesh day in and day out. It beats us. It fools us. It tricks us. It convinces us and deceives us. And we're left worn down. We're left exhausted more than we're not. We're ready to give up. Because we feel like we just cannot win against the flesh. And yet Jesus himself said that although the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. The spirit is eagerly enduring. We can have victory over the flesh. We can have victory over its clutch in our lives. But just like Jesus, we can face temptation, we can face trials, we can face travesty and tragedy, we can face flesh, we can face persecution, punishment, pain. And yet we can still be victorious in upholding God and his will. But first we have to invest in the right place. First we have to invest in the spirit instead of the flesh. Exchange all of us for all of him. First, we have to do the work, put in the time and the labor to be with God, to know God, to seek God, before we can have the advantage of God within us. It takes an investment of the Spirit to give us more of His Spirit. Because only the Spirit profiteth, only the Spirit brings an increase of God in our lives. Jesus endured the cross and all of its agony because he invested in the garden. Man, the world is looking at us. They are are carefully studying our lives. You claim to be a godly man. You claim the name of Christ. You claim to know his will and his ways. But in what have you invested? With the eyes of the entire world upon you, have you, like the disciples, invested in me-centeredness as a man? Have you invested in your own desires, your own interests, your own flesh? And as a result, you get a return of more flesh at the time that you needed God the most? Or have you invested in his spirit within you for more of him? Have you given up your will so that you can take up his will? Have you put in the time and the labor and the effort it takes to know God and to know his will so that you can make it known in and through your life? Man, I want you to ask yourself, aren't you tired of ignorant investments? Aren't you sick of terrible trades that relinquish rank results? In Gethsemane, gains are only found in ideal investments. They are only found in praying and seeking his face and putting in the effort to know him. And if you do, you will receive more of him. Your investment of him will increase. It'll turn a profit. And that, that is an ideal investment. Thanks so much for joining us for another session of the Sand Hill Men's Ministry. 
We hope that your soul has been stirred and your faith has been fortified in what God has called each of us to be as a mighty man. Men who are up for the challenge are invited to take part live, online, or in person in our monthly meetings of the Samuel Men's Ministry. You can also, of course, catch the video of each session or the podcast as a follow-up. For more information about the Sandhill Men's Ministry, to attend our next meeting, or for additional Christian content, please visit our website at www.sandhillfwb.com. Thanks so much for joining us today as we continue on in Christ.